welcome again uh, to church this morning, Memorial Weekend, Memorial Day Weekend. So, you know, there are a lot of metaphors in Scripture for the relationship between God and people. Um, you know, sometimes we're called the people of God or the family of God. Um, this, this, one of the metaphors used for God and the people of God in the Old Testament is um, that of a marriage, of a husband and wife. And for, and for some people, um, some of these uh, metaphors that we use, like, I don't know, marriage or washed in the blood, um, those, those are pretty creepy if you, if you slow down to think about it. Like, if you, if you kind of grew up in the church, maybe you knew those things. They didn't sound so strange to you. But if you're new to the church and someone says, we're going to you know, eat the body and, and drink the blood of Jesus, you might think, I'm out. <laughs> Or for that matter, when you think about religious groups and the way in which sometimes they practice marriage, you know, one, one husband and, you know, a hundred wives or something, you think, oh, that doesn't sound so good either. So with all of those metaphors, whatever they might be, um, I think the key is that we're not to take them literally. I think we're to take them seriously, uh, but not literally, right? We don't, we don't literally that um, Jesus is a lion, like a main, I mean, maybe Matt, <laughs> that happens, uh, but, not, but not Jesus. Uh, Jesus is called the lamb. It doesn't mean that if we, if we shear him, we can get wool. Uh, once again, that might work with Matt, I'm not sure. <laughs> but, um, but generally, we do want to... Um, take these metaphors seriously because they help communicate something that's very true and I think very important. And when it comes to this relationship of, of marriage, um, this is an important metaphor between us and God because marriage is about unity. Uh, marriage is about love. Marriage is about commitment. And, and God is committed to us and God wants to be in union with us. Unfortunately, in the Old Testament, what is often the case is that uh, the metaphor of the marriage often looked like a rocky marriage. So maybe this week, if you want to, you can go read Jeremiah uh, chapter 3, or you can read Ezekiel chapter 16. Uh, we're not going to read those in church today uh, because of mixed company. just going to go ahead and warn you. They're kind of rough, you know, at, at least PG-13. Um, depending on what translation you read, it might be rated R. Um, but it talks pretty negatively about the nation of Israel and the role she has been playing as the uh, spouse or the um, pledged spouse of God. In fact, um, one of the texts that often gets used, at least it's been received this way, to talk about the relationship between uh, God and people in this kind of metaphor is the Song of Solomon, um, which is not a, not a text that we preach from much in Christian circles. And uh, as you may or may not know, was not a text that was used very extensively in Jewish circles either. In fact, when uh, young boys, and they, they were a little um, kind of patriarchal in that society, and by a little I mean a lot. So when, when they taught their young boys to read... Uh, their boys were not allowed to read the Song of Solomon until after their bar mitzvah, until after they were 13. 
So that was like the original PG-13 um, was, was the uh, use of the Song of Solomon. Um, yeah. So we're not going to read that either. <clears throat> but uh, one, of the, one of the texts that kind of plays this metaphor out to kind of the nth degree uh, is this um, relationship between one of the Hebrew prophets and his wife. Um, it comes from the book of Hosea. And um, we want to listen to that. Hosea and his wife. And her name. Ah, uh, the story's a lot better if you don't go her there. Her name is Gomer. If there's a lesson to learn here, it's that you shouldn't name your children things like Gomer. No, there's a much greater lesson to be learned. You see, Gomer was a prostitute. And Hosea was a preacher. Not the kind of match you find on eHarmony. <laughs> but the internet wasn't around back then, and so God was the matchmaker. And Hosea loved Gomer desperately. Have you seen my wife, Gomer? Can you tell me where she is? Desperately, he would search. He wouldn't find her till he looked in the red light district. Despite her lying. Despite her adultery. Hosea loved Gomer. Despite her cruelty. Despite her sin. Hosea loved Gomer. Why can't you just leave me alone? I don't love you. I can't live my life as a prophet's wife. I love you. If you come and find and bring me home, I'm just going back. I'm not the woman you thought I would be, am I? Not now, but in time. You're a dreamer. You're my wife. I'm not your wife. I quit. I never loved you. Do you hear what I'm saying to I you? I do hear you, but I... Get out of my life! I love you. Do you have any pride, any self-respect? I have love. That wasn't the question. Your love is humiliating. But it's also real. Hosea was a romantic in the purest form. Every fiber of his being, every thought was given to love. He was a madman to the world. He followed Gomer anywhere. No one. Not Shakespeare. Not Browning. Or Lennon. Could ever write a love song the way Hosea lived. This romance was a nightmare. Hosea, Hosea was, was a, a failure. failure. Hosea, Hosea loved Gomer. At the height of this romantic catastrophe, we again find Hosea searching the inner city for his wife, and he, he spots her in the distance uh, on an auctioning block. She was an ugly sight. Bruised. Beaten. Naked. Humiliated. Destroyed. She had nothing. Hosea went to their house and gathered all the food and money that they owned. And he ran as fast as he could, and he reached the market just as the auctioneer began. Who will give me five shekels for this woman? Five! Five it is. Do I hear seven? Seven to the soldier. Ten! Oh, ten to the zealous holy man. Do I hear fifteen? Fifteen, any others? Fifteen going once, going twice. I'll give everything I have! And the hammer fell. Hosea came forward and brought everything of value he owned. Wrapping Gomer's naked body, he picked her up and carried her home. Paid in full. A relentless romance. Steadfast, unwavering. Godlike. With a godlike love. Unheard of before this time. Before the time when God looked down across the cosmos, 
saw you and I on the auction block. We were an ugly sight. Bruised. Eaten. Naked. Humiliated. Chained and, and captured, captured like, like an, an animal. animal. But before the bidding began... The earth quaked and God shouted... I'll give everything I have. And the hammer fell. And the ransom was laid down. Paid in full. full. The romance of the ages. Romantic. Who gave birth to other romance. Who loved despite circumstances. Despite lying. Despite adultery. Despite cruelty. Despite sin. God so loved. You are invited to partake in this romance. To enter into the very center of Christ's love. Fully loved. Fully forgiven. Fully free to love each other. The way Christ first loved us. The romance of the ages. But the good news is that we have a God who's kind of steadfast and forever loving and forgiving. So even in, even in the Old Testament, we have these cases where where, like in Hosea, Hosea becomes this kind of metaphor, this symbol for the way in which God treats us, Hosea treats his wife. In Isaiah, the prophet says a similar thing. He says, For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, like the wife of a man's youth when, he is, when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I have abandoned you, but with great compassion will I gather you. So that this is the plan. This is the plan is never to maybe separate but not divorce, uh, so to speak, that to, to bring us back together. Um, this metaphor gets carried on as we get into the New Testament. Uh, some people, again, kind of struggle with metaphors and, and similes and other figures of speech, particularly the hyperboles. Um, there's a lot of exaggeration sometimes in Scripture, and people read it and they think, oh, I can't do that. And they're like, well, you know, it's, it's a hyperbole. Um, Jesus struggled a bit with his disciples quite a bit. He would say something, they would take him literally, he'd kind of smack his head, and he's like, oi, you know, come on, boys, understand metaphor. <laughs> I said yeast, but I wasn't talking about literal yeast, I'm talking about something else. Um, I'm talking about something deeper, something truer, something that, that words don't easily describe. So at one point, um, Jesus is talking about how all this is going to play out in the end, and he says, um, I'm leaving, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. For in my Father's house there are many rooms. It's, a, it's an interesting comment because it kind of parallels the practice of marriage in the first century. Uh, in Second Temple Judaism, uh, the Jews really knew how to celebrate marriage. Uh, I wanted to do a little bit more of that, like smash a glass or something, you know, lachaim. Um, and I was going to put a little tent but anyway, I got voted down on that too. Um, so so in, in that, you know, you'd have these kind of multiple day ceremony. And it, it was at her house. It was at the bride's house. And everybody's eating and feasting. And, you know, not just for a few hours, but for, like for a few days. And then, the, and then the groom would leave. And he would, he would leave her at her father's house. And he would go to his father's house. And he would build on a room. And then he'd go and get her and, and kind of bring her back, and they would have a space, a, a new space for her, uh, a new space for them together. It's interesting. I mean, one translation says, in my father's house are many mansions, which really kind of stretches the metaphor really far. In my father's house are many mansions. Some people like that idea. They like the idea that everybody gets a mansion. 
Um, but that's not what that text says, um, unfortunately, for those. It says, in my Father's house are many rooms, meaning that there's, there's always a place. There's always a place for you here. There's always a place for you with God that this, this union God is fully committed to. Uh, this metaphor of, of bride gets played out um, in the book of Revelation perhaps more than in any other place. See, Revelation um, is presented to us with kind of a, a dual kind of warning and encouragement. Uh, the, the warning kind of comes like this. Like, when persecution comes, whatever persecution might look like, um, you'll be tempted to do a few things. You'll be tempted perhaps to kind of just give in to the persecution, um, in which case you might kind of forsake your first love. You might, you might kind of relinquish your commitment to your faith. But there's the other side of that is not so much um, a relinquishing caused by persecution, but caused by assimilation. That in, in the book of Revelation, one of the dangers is not that the people are going to be so persecuted that they're going to give up their faith, but that they're going to be so persuaded by the, by the success and the wealth and the lifestyle of Rome that they'll just, they'll just give in. They'll just kind of go along. I mean, you don't see any persecution really in the church of Ephesus or in the church of Laodicea. Now, Smyrna and Philadelphia, they're having it rough. But large parts of the church were not. And so it's a bit of a myth that in the ancient world, all Christians suffered persecution. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Like, like every Christian was having to fight off a lion in the Colosseum. Um, that's, that's not an accurate depiction of the ancient world. In the ancient world, there were those who suffered for their faith, uh, but they didn't live in Lakeland, right? Or in, in Bartow or Plant City or Winter Haven. Um, we most likely will not live a life where we will be persecuted for our faith. Now, perhaps we'll be, um, I don't know, disadvantaged or, or uh, marginalized ever so slightly. <laughs> um, but I'm really uncomfortable with people who call that persecution, right? That's not persecution. Persecution is like when you get beat up and thrown into jail. Persecution is when they kill you. We'll, we'll save the word persecution for that kind of act because, frankly, that still happens to some Christians. There are some places on the planet where if you say in public, I'm Christian, it puts your life in danger. Now, if you find yourself in that situation, the book of Revelation says to you, stay faithful. It is the Lamb who is on the throne, not Caesar. And the Lamb is coming back to make things right, to fix things, to set things in order, to bring justice. The wicked will be judged, the righteous will be rewarded, and we're going to work these things out. But we don't find ourselves in that situation, really. We find ourselves in a different situation. The situation that we find ourselves in is that it's so easy for me to live life like anybody else might live life in Lakeland. I mean, I have a nice job, a nice house, my car's okay. You know, we go on nice vacations, got the little annual pass sticker on the back of the minivan, you know, AP, right, little Mickey in the middle. 
Uh, Angela's uh, maiden name is Patrick, so every time I see an AP, my first thought is Angela Patrick, but it doesn't mean that. It means annual pass holder. But here's my question. How is my life any different than anybody else's life that lives on Darlington Circle? That's my address. Right? Our houses look the same. Our cars look the same. Our vacations look the same. Our children look the same. They all go away to college. Right? What's, what's my concern? Here's the danger, my friends. The danger is that I can be so assimilated into a system that can exist without God that I can become part of that anti-God or non-God existence. And when I find myself in that situation, what I have to ask myself, am I being more faithful like a bride or am I being more unfaithful like a harlot? You see, this is how Revelation then paves its path as the story goes along. We, we get all of these pictures about uh, dangers and pitfalls that we are to avoid, right? Like avoid kind of giving up your faith if you're being persecuted. Avoid uh, forsaking your faith if you're just, you know, being tempted to assimilate. You know, stay faithful. You know, maintain the witness. You know, keep the faith. <laughs> Believe in God. You know, practice holiness. This, this is the message that's coming, coming to us. And as the story comes to an end, we, what we see is kind of an um, alternative endings. Yeah, these used to come on uh, DVDs back when DVDs were new uh, technology. Yeah. You, could, you could look it up and it had, you could watch the alternative endings in the bonus features. So, so, so Revelation is not so much just intended to be read kind of straight through chronologically beginning to end, it, it plays out more like a Quentin Tarantino film. Like you get kind of start in the middle and you get thrown all the way around and then eventually you, f you figure out what all those different symbols stood for. And so at the end, we have these two women and one is a harlot. Phil refers to her as a whore. And the other is a bride. And see, those two women then as metaphors or symbols then, then transform themselves into cities. One transforms into the city of Babylon and the other transforms into the city of the New Jerusalem. But in between those two stories of, of the harlot and the bride is a story of a marriage and a story of a reception that takes place. It's in, it's in Revelation chapter 19. It reads something like this. It says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So that in some ways, when, we, when the metaphor of bride and groom got used in the New Testament, it wasn't so much that we had already been married, but rather we'd just been engaged. We've been betrothed in the old Jewish sense. That it, we are kind of in this already but not yet reality. Um, 
you know, all these metaphors and scriptures, they don't always kind of coalesce very nicely. Because, you know, sometimes we talk about what does it mean to become a Christian? And we say being born again or being a new creature. Both of those sound like it's all kind of brand spanking new stuff, right? But then there are other metaphors that make it sound like it's more of a process and kind of messy. Like there's this one, Paul says, that we will receive the spirit of adoption. Like we will be adopted. Like we've, we've, we're kind of like set up for adoption already, but we haven't actually gotten to adoption day. Like adoption day is when Jesus comes back. That's a very different metaphor from being born again. All right? We, scripture is kind of full of these things because I don't think any one of them, any one symbol or any one simile can kind of capture what it is that we're talking about. And so if we pause just to look at this one, <laughs> this one about the, the church as the bride or the people of God as the bride, then we are still here on earth. We, 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 are, we are betrothed, but we have not yet gotten to the wedding ceremony. We're kind of waiting on our groom. And so we prepare ourselves. So in some ways, the communion table gets transformed into a wedding rehearsal. So at the wedding rehearsal, you, you kind of practice, right? You go through all of the elements. The minister's there, and the, and the couple that's getting married's there, and their family's there, right? And you kind of run through the service. And so as we take communion, we are rehearsing what it will be like to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because Paul says, when he talks about practicing this, he says, do this until he comes. Right? So it's, it's, it's both uh, reflective in the sense that do this in remembrance of me, but it's also proleptic or it's um, predictive because it says do this until he comes. So we're looking both backwards at all that God has done in the life of Jesus, but we're also looking forward in hope of all what God will do in Jesus. Because you see, as I look around, things are pretty rough. There are a lot of things that aren't right. I mean, there's ways in which we often talk about the presence of God, that God is with us. I mean, this is one of the, this is one of the great sacraments of the church when we talk about the presence of God, that, that Jesus is present in the very elements that through the power of the Spirit, we are all together. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. But there's also a real truth that Jesus is not with us. That Jesus is still to come. And that is our hope. If Jesus was fully with us, then we would have a lot of um, reimagining to do. Because I imagine that when Jesus comes, things are going to be better than what they are. Not just better in the world, but even better in the church. We can't hardly uh, treat each other the way we should about half the time. You know, not until we learn to accept one another and love one another and embrace one another and serve one another will we start to get a glimpse of what it's like to live in this family, to be, to be espoused to this groom.
when we look around and, and we see the destruction and, and the sickness and the heartache, this is not the end. That's why we come together to hope and pray that the end will come and that things will be made right. This is the prayer that comes at the end of, of Revelation. It's in chapter 22. It says this, it says, The Spirit and the Bride say come. So it's the very Spirit of God that animates us and, and helps us articulate the right prayer. Come, come Jesus, and let everyone who hears say come. Let everyone who is thirsty come. Let, any, let anyone who wishes to take the water of life as a gift, come. This is one of the most important points, I think, of how all these metaphors work in Scripture. So when we talk about Israel as the people of God or as the wife of Yahweh, or if we come into the New Testament and we talk about the church as the bride of Christ, it's important, and I think very important, very important, to realize that these are not exclusive entities. It's not like we have this group and therefore everyone else is out. The, the, the bride of Christ, as a metaphor for the church, is an example both of what we are a part of, those who have come before us, those who will come after us, and it doesn't represent the totality of humanity, but it doesn't necessarily exclude the rest of humanity. In fact, the purpose of the bride is to, is to be this, to use yet another metaphor, to be this city on a hill, to be this light, to be this salt. Right? The bride with the Spirit pray to Jesus to come. And then there's this invitation let everybody else who's interested pray come. And then it says, to anyone who is thirsty, come. Come and what? Well, come and drink. Come and eat. Come and taste and see how wonderful God is. Come and become part of the bride. So that as we come, right, we ourselves become part of the bride. And then we pray and invite others to come and become part of the bride. It's also very important, I think, to realize that this is not an individualistic metaphor that plays out. Like you're a bride and 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 you're a bride. You're a bride. You know, we don't want to play that out too much, right? Then God becomes the great polygamist. That's, that, don't go there. That's not what this is. What this is, is that collectively again, in the same way I, I spoke on the day of Pentecost, we might be members of the bodies of Christ, but it's that body that is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Then so too, it is, it is collectively that we form the, the wife of Yahweh or, or the bride of Christ. So what would that look like? 
What would that look like for you? What does this mean for you this, this weekend or this week? Well, hopefully, it can be a reminder, uh, perhaps even a wake-up call, that the bride prepares herself, right, in fine linens, which are the righteous deeds of the bride. It says the bride prepares herself, dressed in fine linen, and then it says, and the fine linen are the righteous deeds of the bride. So in some ways... These kind of messages, I think, can, can help kind of wake us up. Sometimes it's easy to kind of, I don't know, fall asleep. I'm not just talking about Sunday morning church. I'm talking about um, to just kind of live our lives almost numb to, to the spiritual realities. So, so we're, I'm going to invite you to the table in just a minute. And we're going to serve and we're going to toast, and we're going to celebrate like I'm the father of the bride. That'd be a good metaphor. You know, in some Christian traditions, they call the minister father. Now, I'm not saying we're going to do that around here, but I kind of like that. <laughs> father Robbie. All of a sudden, it didn't sound as good when it, when it came out as I thought about it. But in some ways, yeah, that's how Paul treated the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he talks to the church like, I'm preparing you as a bride for Christ. So that's what the minister was doing. That's what Paul was doing, right? He was playing the father of the bride, just to play out the metaphor a little bit. But as you come, or as the elements get served to you today, I'd like for you to just kind of open up your imaginations, open up your hearts. Maybe, maybe shake yourself a little bit. Remind yourself that you are a part of something special. And that every kind of righteous deed that you do is, is part of, of our preparation for this great final celebration that we're waiting for. When our groom returns and we can celebrate that things finally uh, will be made right. I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see as you see. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Animate our lives. Articulate our prayers. So that we may say with the rest of the bride and with the true Holy Spirit, come. May all those who hear say come. May all who are thirsty get to come and receive this great union. In Jesus' name.